with your excitement. It's overwhelming. The fact that you're even here for a study of Leviticus is enough for me, so I'm, I'm happy about that. Last week, we, we were in chapter 11, and chapter 11 is a long chapter, and then chapter 12 is the shortest chapter in the book. So we're going to hit them both today. We're going to finish chapter 11. Just for recap, for those who weren't here or, or didn't catch the podcast, chapter 11 started talking about the whole idea in Israel of clean and unclean foods. And there's so many associations we have in English when we use words like clean and unclean or detestable. Um, these are words that have a really emotional connotation for us in English. But in Hebrew Bible, they didn't have that emotional connotation that we have. If something was called detestable, and it was referring to the menu, that doesn't mean that God hated shrimp or that God hated pork. He created those animals. They're good. He saw what he created in the beginning, and it was very good. So it's not like God hates these certain foods, and it's not like the Israelites went around, and if they saw like a pig in a field or a mouse on the ground, they were just like, Bleh. Bleh. Oh, that's detestable. It wasn't like that. Detestable meant not on the menu. Okay? You're not allowed to eat these animals. And we talked about why real quick, briefly, because this is an insight that gets missed a lot. God divided the animal world into the same division that he divided the humanities, or the human world, in terms of holiness. So what you had was all of the animals in the animal kingdom. And then within that huge group, you had a subset of animals that were considered clean, or edible, or usable by Israel. And then within that, you had the animals that could be offered in the tabernacle as a sacrifice in God's presence. So it was this narrowing down, not of worth or of intrinsic value, but of fitness for holiness is what it was in worship. So likewise, the Bible in, in the Old Testament, humanity was divided as well. God had, had had all of humanity, and then he called out Israel as a subset of humanity to be his kingdom of priests. Is it because God liked Israel better? No, he makes that clear in Deuteronomy. Is it because he thought Jews were superior and other Gentiles were inferior? No, he makes that clear in Jonah. God called out Israel for a purpose, and that purpose had to do with worship of him. That's the key. All of this stuff we're reading in Leviticus is about purpose in worship for the community. So when we're coming to this, the worst thing that we can do is we pick up the Bible and we turn to chapter 12 and we're like, oh, this is weird. I don't understand this verse. Oh, well, that doesn't apply to me anymore because I'm a Christian, blah, blah, blah. No, instead, you read through and when you do what we're doing in this study, which is reading through the entire book as a book. Chapters and verses were not invented until after the printing press. As a book, as a whole, we're reading this and we start to see patterns emerge. So, for instance, in chapters uh, 11, 12, and 13, particularly 11 and 12, but then also in 13, you have the same order of dealing with things as you did in the creation accounts. There's, this, there's an order to God's dealing with these animal rules and these laws about cleanliness and everything that follows the order that he put out in Genesis chapter 1. It's a very subtle but very noticeable, and, and, and once you see it, you're like, oh, that totally makes sense. I'll show you an example. The point is that all of this is a cohesive unit. Leviticus is, is, a, is, a, is not individual laws. Some got passed then, and some got passed then, and some are in place now. It was all part of the covenant. It was all a part of God saying, hey, Israel, 
I've called you. You're going to be different than the nations around you in every way or every sphere of your life. From the way you worship, to the way you do your agriculture, to the way you treat your uh, people in your midst, your work workers, to the way even that you eat and prepare your food. All of it's going to be different. And so within that last week, we saw these delineations that he, using the Genesis language, he started delineating between kinds. Like Genesis said, each produced according to their kinds. So God went and started delineating according to the kinds in terms of what his people could eat and could, and could be in contact with. And so we ended right around chapter verse 29. And so just like Genesis went through and dealt with like the animals, uh, the plants, and then it dealt with the animals uh, on the uh, sky and the animals in the seas, and then it dealt with the land animals like the cattle, and then it dealt with the things that creepeth upon the earth, to use King James language. Now God is going through and gets to this category. So he's going to talk about these things that crawl along the earth that other cultures in that time ate all the time. Good source of protein, right? So God is saying, look, you're going to be different in this way. I'm actually, your menu is going to be different. And when it comes to, he says, verse 29, of the animals that move on the ground, these are unclean for you. And he's going to go on and list a bunch according to the kind. He says, the weasel, the rat, any kind of great lizard, the gecko, monitor lizard, wall lizard, skank, and the chameleon. Of all those that move along the ground, these are unclean for you. Whoever touches them when they are dead will be unclean until evening. Why would you touch something when it's dead? Because it died in your house and you got to remove it. What do you do when you have a mouse trap, right? If the mouse dies, you don't just leave it there. You remove it, right? And God's saying, in that act of remove, remember, the whole idea of cleanness and uncleanness has to do with death. Because God is teaching something about his character and the character of his people, which is my character, my essence is life and holiness and the giving of fruitfulness and the bearing of light and goodness and all of those things. So anything that symbolizes or that touches upon the realm of death is going to make you unable to enter into my worship presence, the tabernacle, for a period of time. Because I'm teaching you over the centuries, I'm ingraining into the idea that God and death are not uh, to be mingled. That God is a God of life. And the ultimate example of this, of course, would be Jesus actually experiencing God, actually tasting death, and then coming out the other side, rising from the dead, showing that death has been swallowed up by life, to use the New Testament example. So in the Old Testament, there's hints and shadows of this, things that, that have to do with death or that symbolize death or that put you approaching death are things that God wants his people to avoid as they are worshiping. They, they render someone unable to enter into the holiness of God's tabernacle. And that's what all this is about. It doesn't mean if you touch a dead lizard, you got to move out of town. It's not like that. It's if you touch a dead lizard, you're unclean until evening. And you need to do this ritual to remind you and to remind the community that God is a God of life who dwells in unapproachable life and splendor and life holiness. So there are rituals, but check this out. He says... Uh, verse 32, when one of them, meaning one of these things that crawls on the ground, lizards, mice, rats, that kind of stuff, when one of them dies and falls on something, that article, whatever it's used, will be unclean, whether it's made of wool, cloth, hide, or sackcloth. Put it in water, it will be unclean until evening, and then it will be clean. So what's the penalty? Wash it. I mean, that's just good hygiene in general. If there's a dead thing on your leather couch, you wash it. 
right? If you find a dead rat in your laundry, you wash your clothes. You don't just go, oh, we're good. So it's just a basic hygiene point. But beyond that, there's a symbolism, there's a theological significance that God is saying is I am a God, me and death don't mix in your experience of me. Uh, if one of them falls into a clay pot, everything in it will be unclean. You must break the pot. Like you can't really wash a clay pot because it's porous and it's malleable and all that kind of stuff. Uh, any food that could be eaten by his water on it, such a pot is unclean. Any liquid that could be drunk from it is unclean. Anything that one of their carcasses falls on becomes unclean. An oven or a cooking pot must be broken up. They are unclean and you are to regard them as unclean. Verse 36. A spring, however, or a cistern for the collecting of water remains clean. Anyone who touches one of these carcasses is unclean, but if carcass falls on any of the seeds that are to be planted, they are to remain clean. If the water has been put on the seed and the carcass falls on it, it's unclean for you. That little throwaway, if it falls into a cistern or a spring, it's not, they're not, the cistern and the spring don't become unclean. Everything else that death touches becomes unclean. But a cistern and a spring are the sources of water and water is the purification for uncleanness. That's what it says, wash it with water and it'll be clean. So what this is saying, the source of water cannot be polluted. The source. The source of the water, the thing that's bringing the water that used for cleanliness into the realm of Israel's existence, that doesn't become unclean by touching or by coming in contact with death. Why? Because it's the source of cleanliness. It's, it symbolizes the spring and the cistern symbolize the source from which the cleanness flows. Springs of water flowing don't become polluted by something coming in contact with it. And a number of commentators have looked at this and they've seen the principle, obviously, that, that death can contaminate things that aren't emanating cleanliness, emanating life, emanating washing in and of themselves, like water in a pot or, or, or you know, a puddle or something like that. But the thing for Israel that was the source of their water, the cisterns and the springs, those would not be contaminated simply by coming in contact with something more clean. Why? Well, on a practical level, because that would severely hurt Israel's ability to have access to water. They couldn't drink water because a mouse fell in a cistern. All of a sudden, in a desert arid climate, that's really unfortunate. So God, in his mercy, there's some say he extended this rule. And that could be true, too. But more than that, it's, I think there's a theological thing going on that's the, the, the source of what cleanses is, doesn't get defied, only the intermediaries. So when people had contact in the world with people who were unclean, who were lepers, let's say, if I were a first century Jew and I came in contact with somebody who had leprosy, I would become unclean. I would have to go and perform a, a, a cleansing rite and be unclean until leaving and then present myself to the priest and sacrifice everything. But Jesus... What did he do when he experienced and came across people with lepers? Touched them. And what happened? Did he become unclean? No, it flooded the other one. His holiness and his life-giving essence, his cleanness radiated out rather than their uncleanness contaminating him. Why? Because he's the source of God's holiness. He's the spring of living water. And so there's a huge... Uh, dynamic theologically going on with that one little throwaway line in terms of the the, the, the the interaction between uncleanness and holiness 
And so in the new covenant, then, when God, when Jesus sends the Holy Spirit, breathes into his followers, sends them, does he send them out into the desert to build communes, to keep people out, to preserve their holiness? His cousin John the Baptist used to live with people that did that. They were called the Essenes, and they lived in the desert, and they bathed every day in the mikvah to wash themselves and remain clean, awaiting the Messiah. The Essenes did that, and they died in the desert. And all we know about them is what was found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Christians, who were their contemporaries, did the opposite. Jesus said, receive the Holy Spirit and then go into the world. Go into the places that are darkness and be light. Go into the places that are decaying and be salt. You are now a preservative because you're, you're abiding in me. So there's a huge paradigm shift that takes place between the Mosaic Covenant, the Levitical Covenant, where cleanliness had to be safeguarded from being polluted from without and the new covenant where God sends the Holy Spirit. What did Jesus say? If anyone believes in me, he'll, springs of living water will flow up inside of him. So now God puts within his people the ability to do what the cisterns and the springs and the Levitical cleanliness laws would do, which is to not be contaminated by simple or mere contact with that which is unclean and impure. So there's a massive theological lesson here to be found if we understand first what the cleanliness in, entailed in Israel and then look at it through the lens of the covenant. And we see that that principle there still applies, that the source of cleansing doesn't get contaminated by coming in contact with the unclean. So Jesus could touch the leper. He could touch and heal the blind. He could go to the outcasts, to the unreachables. My friends in India, when we go every year, their, their biggest success in ministry, their, their biggest mission field where they're seeing people come to Christ by the scores is among the Dalits in India. Who are the Dalits? Those are the untouchables in Hinduism. Those are the castes that you're not even allowed to touch. One of my Indian friends on Facebook posted a picture. It was all in Hindi. So I asked him, what did the Hindi say? This picture of a woman in, in Hindu garb holding her hand out as a cow on the street, and you go to India, that's not unusual. Cow on the street was pee. Cows pee everywhere. They poop and pee everywhere. It's just what they do. They're around animals. The woman's holding her hand out to catch some of this pee to drink it. Because that was considered holy. Because the cow is the mount of Shiva, and if a cow comes in contact with you, it comes to your stall, it eats from your trash bin, whatever, it's considered good luck, it's considered blessing. So even the urine of this cow was considered like we would consider holy water. And he posted the picture of the image that says, imagine, he says, he says, the picture, the gist of it was, I love my Indian people, I love my Indian culture, I love my Indian heritage, I love India, I love being Indian. But imagine in a culture where it is considered holy to drink the urine of a cow that you're not allowed to touch certain people who are created in the image of God. And it was an Indian Christian who posted that. And it was just a fantastic example of how worldwide the idea of cleanness and uncleanness, even that is misconstrued. But biblically, we see principles in Scripture, even in the laws of religions, that, that point us beyond our culture towards the higher ethic that God will ultimately come and reveal in Jesus. So things that were clean and unclean get a whole new twist in the new covenant. That's why things like food laws and Jesus touching lepers, healing on the Sabbath, all of these things were so radical to the minds of his contemporaries. So then it ends this chapter. I want to get through chapter 12 because it's only eight verses. 
but it, this chapter ends, if an animal you're allowed to eat dies, anyone who touches the carcass will be unclean until evening. Anyone who eats some of the carcass must wash his clothes, and he'll be unclean until evening. Anyone who picks up the carcass must wash his clothes, and he'll be unclean until evening. So you're an exterminator, you called in, you removed the dead mouse from the grain pile in the corner. All right, throw out the grain, unless it hasn't had water on it yet. And you, exterminator, go wash your clothes before you go to the tabernacle. In other words, don't go to the tabernacle after the state of uncleanness. Don't present your offerings. Do that tomorrow after you've been through this purification. So it wasn't, again, it wasn't like you were banished. It wasn't like you were told to remove from society. This has to do with practical ritual holiness and your ability to enter the tabernacle. This hall, all of Leviticus is, remember, it's the instructions for the tabernacle. So keep that in mind as the focus. For every creature that moves on the ground is detestable. It's not to be eaten. In other words, no creepy crawlies. You're not to eat any creature that moves about on the ground, whether it moves on its belly or walks on all fours, on many feet, it's detestable. Do not defile yourself by these creatures, do not make yourselves unclean by means of them, and be made unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves and be holy, because I am holy. Catch that? You be holy, because I am holy. All of this lessons about holiness are refractions or reflections of what God's nature is in and of itself. So we can learn something about God by looking at these holiness laws. Now, some of them we can't tell exactly what they are depicting about God, and some of them have been lost in time, lost in culture, lost in translation. But for the most part, overall, the value, the payoff of studying the holiness of Leviticus is to understand the holiness of God. And then to see that that same God is the same God of the New Testament who calls us to be holy. Because when Peter writes his letter to Gentile Christians in the Roman world, after the death of Jesus, in the letter on his second Peter, first Peter, he, or first and second Peter, he starts by saying, you as a chosen priesthood, a royal priesthood people, he's talking to Gentiles, but he's applying the designation of Israel to them. Why? Because in Christ, Israel had opened its borders and all who believe in Jesus are now part of Israel. No two covenant peoples here, all part of Israel. So Peter takes the lessons of Israel's scriptures, applies them to Gentile converts who believe in Israel's Messiah, and then undergirds it with, here's why you're going to live holy lives, because it's written, be holy as I am holy. So Peter cites Leviticus. Leviticus is important enough for Peter to cite, it's important enough for us to study. So then it ends. These are the regulations, uh, verse 46, concerning that word regulation, that's the word Torah. These are the Torah, this is the Torah concerning the animals, birds, every living thing that moves in the water, and every creature that moves on the ground. Because those Genesis 1 terms again. You must distinguish between the unclean and the clean, between living creatures that may be eaten and those that may not be eaten. That's the point of this chapter. What's unclean? What can be eaten? What cannot be eaten? Now, verse 12. This is eight verses. The Lord said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, A woman who becomes pregnant and gives birth to a son will be ceremonially unclean for seven days, just as she is unclean during her monthly period. All right, I know you were hoping that we would have good period menstruation talk today at lunch. That was on your minds when you came in. Please talk about menstruating the period. Um, here's the thing, first of all. That phrase, and if you, have a, if you write or take notes, take note of this. A woman who becomes pregnant... That is a translation of the Hebrew word, literally, which means a woman who produces seed. That, that, that form of the word zarah, that same word for seed that we've seen for three years now. All through Genesis, all through Exodus. What's been the promise of Genesis? The seed. What would crush the head of the serpent? The seed of the woman. 
So this chapter now is moving. You say, well, why is this dealing with childbirth and cleanliness laws and all that? Well, the creation account, what did it do? It talked about the animals that were created. It talked about birds of the air, fish of the sea, the animals that crawled on the ground, then people multiply. So all of this terminology, so the only other time this verb is used of producing seed is back in the Genesis account when the command is talking about where it's given to and it describes trees producing seed according to their kind, uh, you know, plants producing seed according to their, that's the only other time that this, this term, this is not the normal term for become pregnant. This is a time where if you have an English Bible that does a good translation, which is a good translation, because that's what the term means in this context. It means when a woman becomes pregnant. It doesn't mean when she starts producing actual seeds. But it's a good reason why if you just, if you don't have access to that underlying Hebrew, you miss a valuable connection that the text is making because it's using a different term for to become pregnant. This is intentionally drawing the mind of the reader back to the original purpose of this whole thing to begin with, which is through your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. God said to Abraham. That's the basis of the covenant. That's the foundation of the covenant. That's before the covenant was even given. That's Genesis 15, picking up on Genesis 3. So it's very, very important to just, just that tiny little thing to catch. But he says, so if a woman who produces seed becomes pregnant and gives birth to a son, she will be ceremonially unclean for seven days, just as she is unclean during her monthly period. Now, stuff about period and discharges and all that, don't worry. We'll get to that later. That's coming up in chapter 15. So if you're really excited to hear about bodily discharges, you just get ready because we're headed there. But this is about childbirth. Uh, so she'll be unclean just like she will be during her monthly period. There'll be rules that will come along with that. On the eighth day, the boy is to be circumcised. Then the woman must wait 33 days to be purified from her bleeding. She must not touch anything sacred or go to the sanctuary until the days of her purification are over. She gives birth to a daughter. For two weeks, the woman will be unclean as during her period. Then she must wait 66 days to be purified from her bleeding. Now, a couple of roadblocks already in place here. One, what does it mean to be purified from her bleeding? I don't know how childbirth works mechanically in terms of actual experience. I've had none. But I know a number of you in here have. Um, when you have a baby, there's a lot of bodily fluids that are involved. From the breaking of the water to the actual delivery to the stuff that comes out after. There's a lot of bleeding. And that's not bad. Scripture's not against that. The, what is God's first command? Be fruitful and multiply. What did he tell the, the men and women to do? To fill the earth, to have children. What is the number one blessing in the Old Testament that God can give to a woman? Her to produce children. So the childbearing, the, all of that, it's good. It's part of God's good creation. It's not bad. The bleeding, the fact that it comes through pain, I guess, right? Women who've had children, you can nod to that if you think it came through pain. The fact that it involves a lot of pain, the fact that it involves bleeding, the fact until up until about 100 years ago, it was the leading thing that killed women, right? So I don't know if that 100 years is exactly right, but until recent history, child, and even around the world nowadays, childbirth is not what it is here in America in terms of sanitary, safety, medical health, all of that. Childbirth is a literally a life and death act. By bringing new life into the world, you do so by taking by stepping to death's door. 
And so childbirth is this point where life and death are basically balancing on a razor's edge for women in Israel and even around the world today. And so that uncleanness, that the, 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 the blood and, and the, the life-giving, I mean, what's more symbolic of life than the womb and the nutrients and the blood and the, and the placenta and all that fun stuff that makes guys squirm. But all of that is considered good, but it's also considered like you're on the cusp of death. And so after a child is born, there's a period of time where the woman continues, especially, especially pre-medical science days, where the woman's bleeding continues, where there's stretching and tearing and there's all kinds of just stuff going on there that guys don't understand, and even at the time, women experienced differently. Some women had an easy birth, some women had a hard birth, some women died in childbirth. So there's this, there's this almost like this, this hint of death when a new life is brought into the world. And so that renders the woman unclean until that is over, until that bleeding is stopped. And it's a period of 33 days, it's actually a period of 66 days, but if it's a boy and the boy undergoes circumcision, which is also not a very easy and carefree thing pre-penicillin, then the, if it's a son and he's circumcised, then that effectively cuts in half the time of the uncleanness of the mother. If it's a girl, a woman who gives birth to a girl who herself will one day give birth to other people and continue that cycle of birth, death, that balance in between, then it's the full period, which is 66 days, plus the two weeks of her uh, right after the birth before she can go back and resume worship. So for a woman, it was you give birth, there's a period of a week or two weeks where you're ritually unclean and you can't approach the tabernacle or anything, which, why would you want to? You're recovering from childbirth in an ancient Near East society. So you're okay not going to the tabernacle. But when that's over, then, they're specified, you'll come and you'll bring an offering, which will then reinstate you back into the worshiping community. But there's still this period of uncleanness. There's still this period of purification that you have to go through, which is lasts for about 66 days, about two months or so. And it's that's during that time the woman can recover. The woman and the child can be together. There's not the interruptions of daily life. She doesn't have to go back into the field and get to work and all of this kind of stuff. So there's this period that's built in that there's care for the mother because she's just done the thing that God wants humanity to do, which is to produce seed. But at the same time, there's a realization that because of the fall, that producing of seed comes at the expense of being somewhat conflated with death. Through, you know, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. Uh, echoes of Genesis chapter 3 come back when, when any time when there was birth. So then in verse 6, when the days of her purification for a son or a daughter are over, she's to bring to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting a year-old lamb for a bird offering, the young pigeon or dove for a purification offering. It's called sin offering in NIV, but remember as we look at the offerings, it's, it's purification offering. If you say sin offering, just highlight or parentheses unintentional sin offering because it doesn't have anything to do with the woman sinning. This is for unintentional in, uh, encounters with uncleanness. That's for the sin. So that's why newer translations say purification offering rather than sin offering. Regardless though, the priest shall offer them before the Lord to make atonement for her and then she will be ceremonially clean from her flow of blood. 
these are the regulations, or this is the Torah, for the woman who gives birth to a boy or a girl. If she cannot afford a lamb, she has to bring two doves or two young pigeons, one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering. In this way, the priest will make atonement for her and she will be clean. So even the poor were allowed to experience the, 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 the sacrament of childbirth and were not excluded based on the fact that they couldn't afford to bring a lamb. They were allowed to bring two small birds, one for one offering, one for the other, instead of a lamb and a bird. And we see this in Luke 2, when Mary had Jesus after he was circumcised, what did they do? They brought him to the temple and they made the offering. And it says she brought two small birds. Jesus' parents couldn't afford the lamb. Joseph, the carpentry business was not booming at the time. They were poor. And so this is, this is, this was followed even by the Son of God. This ritual and the purification. The concept in this, the idea in this, I want to read from real quick. We're going to end because we have about one minute left. This is uh, John Salehammer in his commentary on the whole Pentateuch, the whole Torah. Um, he says, just to highlight what we've been talking about, impurity is not defined in terms of a vague notion of taboo, but in terms of acceptance or restriction from worship. The sense of impurity is thus defined with respect to the goal of the covenant and the goal of creation, that is, the worship of God. Being in a state of impurity meant not being allowed to worship God in the community assembly. In other words, not being able to have access to the tabernacle area. That's what impurity in all of these laws has to do. Uncleanness was not a vague notion of guilt or a mere ostracism from everyday life of the community. Uncleanness meant one was barred from the worship life of the covenant community. Uncleanness meant separation from the sacred and the tabernacle. And then he goes on to say uh, about the whole idea of the woman uh, producing seed, using that term. He says, first, the verbal link in the use of the term seed in this chapter and the creation account in Genesis 1 supports the long-acknowledged observation that this section of Leviticus follows remarkably closely the pattern of the creation account in Genesis. In Genesis 1, for example, God distinguishes the good from the evil in his new creation. After each new act of creation, God says it is good. In a similar way, in these chapters of Leviticus, God distinguishes the clean from the unclean. Just as he distinguished the good for humanity in creation, so now God distinguishes the clean for humanity in covenant. Moreover, the order God follows in creation, dealing first with the animals, birds, sea creatures, and creeping things, and then with humanity, is the same order he follows here, dealing first with the animals, birds, and sea creatures, and then with humanity, in Leviticus 11 and 12. The author is clearly intent on our seeing a similar pattern in God's overall purpose and work. Second, the use of the term seed in Leviticus 12.2 and the notion of childbirth may also be alluded to the promised seed of the woman in Genesis 3.15, as well as to the curse in Genesis 3.16, I will greatly increase your pains of childbearing. There can be no doubt that the author has focused our attention on the central role of childbirth in fulfilling God's plan of blessing since the beginning chapters of Genesis. In Genesis 1.28, the first divine blessing of humankind is centered on the woman's role in childbirth, be fruitful and multiply and fill the land. After the fall, the curse as well as the blessing centers on the woman and her childbearing. The curse, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing, as well as the blessing, the woman's seed will crush the head of the serpent. Through the patriarch narratives, the promised seed lies at the center of the hope of blessing. 
and it's going to go on in the next chapter that, that, that we're going to deal with next week. God's going to start talking about things like impurity regarding skin things. It's going to be skin ailments, skin impurities, even things in the skin of animals that are leather goods. Because what happened after the fall? What happened after the curse? What did God do right before he, or as he expelled people reading? He took skins and he clothed the people. Adam and Eve. So it's still following the creation pattern in terms of what God's dealing out in Leviticus, but it's within the idea of covenant and cleanliness and holiness. But we're one minute over, so go back to work. Have a great day. We'll see you next week.